Are you guys pumped to be back like me? Pumped? You know? Yeah, kind of. Sure. You guys feel like Hulk Hogan at WrestleMania 18 where he returned to battle The Rock? Yeah. The Rock, huh? Yeah. I can I can smell what The Rock is cooking. <laughs> As if you felt like Hulk Hogan. Well, I mean, I would imagine that Hulk Hogan could smell it too. Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, now certified with a twice as nice guarantee. I am season three, co-host original, lead appreciator of our underappreciated co-host, Orson. And what's your name? Oh, and I'm Jeremy. I'm new around here. <laughs> well, welcome, Jeremy. Do you have a last name? Ruggles. Oh, that's cute. It's on my name tag. See, it I says, see. hello, my name is Jeremy Ruggles. I see that now. Fresh face here at season three. Always fresh. Well, I am your co-host, Peter Cook. And I'm trying to decide whether it's time to gamble or time to huff. (laughs) Why not both? Just ring that bell and go to town. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it seems the appropriate time to do both. Because we're in Vegas right now, right, guys? Oh, no, we're not. No. No. Far from it. Not in Vegas anymore. We are back here, though. We're back on the podcast. But we're going across the country. To the magical land of Philadelphia. Well, two of us are. You and I are, whereas uh, Sean is staying put. He's staying put in the land of Philadelphia. I'm in it to win it, boys. Yeah. So we're kicking off season three with a triple kick of Philadelphia International Records releases because 2021 is the 50th anniversary of the label, correct? True. That's our main reasoning for doing this, not just because Sean is getting all about that Philly to a disturbing degree. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm disturbing you, am I? <laughs> it just seems like everything is leaning in the Philadelphia direction, like it's the center of the universe. <laughs> Can a boy be excited about things in his early 30s? Are you, do you want me to just be jaded and not excited about this cool, cool city that I live in now? <laughs> no, actually, I'm I'm very happy that you have reached your early 30s and are still stoked on things like that. I've yeah. seen I've seen them come and go where they're just like, by then it's it's just no interest anymore. Peter, I'm right here in front of you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry, Jeremy. <laughs> I'll mind my manners. Um. I brought Lou Rawls. Yeah. Philadelphia International Records Extraordinaire. Even though he came... Well, we'll get into that later. Yeah. Lou Rawls. I'm going to play 
the first cut off this album, See You When I Get There. And the album is unmistakably Lou. From 1976. Seven. Ah! <laughs> From 1977. Wait, for real? I have in my notes 76. Am I wrong? Uh, I have it in my notes as 77. Shit. I'm looking at Discogs and it's it's all We're 77. Gonna look at Lou. Oh, it is. The, the, the back of the jacket says 1977. Oh, damn. Well, I'm just really excited to hear the rest of the research that you've put into this episode. <laughs> <laughs> well, first, let's hear Lou. What are we starting with again, Jeremy? See you when I get there. See you when I get there. That's G-I-T. Yeah, get. Pardon me, do you have change for a quarter? I gotta make a phone call. Thank you. Oh, I hope this woman don't take me through no changes today because I've had a hard day today, man. You know, let me see what's happening at the address before I go home. How you doing? I hope you're fine. Did your day take you through changes and mess up your mind? I just called to say that I'm on my way. Oh, and I'll see you when I get there. I hope you're in. You know a man's home is his castle And I'm coming home to groove Oh, and I'll see you when I get there I'll see you when I get there such a good way to kick off this album with that signature Lou Rawls spoken word intro and just that voice that unmistakably Lou voice I just I love it sets the tone immediately and then you got that Gamble and Huff production coming in there just like so funky yet so smooth it's totally sold track one (laughs) yeah it's uh and I mean this in the best way but it's uh very distinctly 70s yeah there's no other decade that 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 the album could kick off this way true and that song is i think somewhat unique on this album this one is the most philly soul sounding song in the album i would say yeah definitely i i feel like most of the rest of the album uh leans more on his crooner side yeah there's more of a 
you know, Sinatra, Sammy Davis Jr., like Vegasiness mixed in with the Philly soul. Sure. Sean, tell the people about Philly soul. Tell them what that means. <laughs> it means a lot of different things. Um, it can mean just like the general common ground of soul music that was happening in this city throughout several decades. But oftentimes it specifically refers to the Gamble and Huff owned Philadelphia International Records and the roster of bands that were on there. And some defining characteristics of Philly Soul is that it's kind of got more of a sophisticated sound. There's some very lush string sections. There's just like a whole lot of production going on. And like we talked about, it's very smooth yet very funky. There's a lot of disco elements going on, but in a lot of ways, Philly Soul actually inspired the the sound of the nationwide disco movement with their production styles. Yeah, it's also, it's like disco, but drier is kind of how my mind interprets it. Everything sounds very dry production-wise in my mind. Well, almost all of it was recorded at, at the same recording studio by the same people. Sigma? Sigma Sound. Yep. Mm -hmm. Sigma Sound. Um, Philly Soul is notable for being a very producer-driven genre of music, where you had different singers, and some of them had different levels of input on the music that was being made. But primarily, this was music that was very controlled by the producers, especially Gamble and Huff. And uh, they had a, a consistent uh, sound and a consist consistent style to it. Yeah, so they are the the founders of this label, Gamble and Huff. Uh, Kenny Gamble and Leon Huff. Kenneth Gamble. <laughs> sure, yeah, either one. So Lou Rawls is kind of interesting because instead of being a new artist being launched by Philadelphia International, he is a artist of some stature and quite a bit of experience in the music industry that is actually like giving his career a fresh wave by joining Philadelphia International Records. That is true. This album we've picked in particular is his second on Philadelphia International, but it is his 29th record at this point. <laughs> He's already been around for over a decade. He's had a handful of hits. And yeah, this is his Philadelphia international years are kind of a reinvention of his sound, I'd say. Absolutely. And it fits perfectly because I feel like a lot of the Philly soul stuff that was happening, like I said, it has a very sophisticated kind of mature feel to it. You know, at one point Motown's motto was the sound of young America. And it just has kind of seemed like Philadelphia international was not necessarily trying to do that, but bring, this like adult oriented, sophisticated soul sound. And I'd say they succeeded. Absolutely. So yeah, I mean, Lou coming in as a fully grown soul singer just fits that vibe perfectly. I'm going to back us up now then and show his growth to this point. I'm going to back up that timeline all the way back to 1933 in Chicago where Lou was raised by his grandmother on the south side in the projects there, and he began singing at age seven in church choir, as so many soul singers seem to have. 
including one Sam Cooke and another Curtis Mayfield, whom he uh, sang with at various points and kind of ran into in this gospel scene. He sang with Sam Cooke in the Teenage Kings of Harmony and then ended up replacing Sam Cooke in the band Highway QCs. Which, if I'm not mistaken, the Teenage Kings of Harmony just changed their name to the Highway QCs at one point. That I did not have in my research. You just shot another hole in my research already. (laughs) Well, I could be wrong. I'm not 100% confident on that statement I just made. Maybe that's a future uh, for the record correction. (laughs) We'll see. I'll look into it. (laughs) Then he makes this decision that I could not find enough about him as a person to make sense of, but he enlisted in the army as a paratrooper and was out doing that for three years and till he left and came back to sing more. So you couldn't find out if he enlisted or was drafted? Well, he enlisted, and it was like 55, I believe. Okay. So that would have been maybe the Korean War? I believe Korean War would have been over by then. Yeah, so I don't... There didn't seem to be, like, any pressure to, and, like, nothing about his life reading about it struck me that he had sympathies with the military, but I don't know. Who knows? Interesting. So he comes back, joins a band called the Pilgrim Travelers, and while touring with the Travelers and Sam Cooke, he has a car accident in 1958 that he dies in. That really puts a hole in the story there, huh? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So wait, what are we listening to right now then? Is this... Well, is this like a Paul McCartney-esque body double going on? What's what's happening? Yes, this is like Avril Lavigne and uh, that whole thing. Look up Avril Lavigne conspiracy if you want to be confused for about five minutes. <laughs> but he was revived at the hospital when he arrived and was in a coma for five and a half days. And it took him months just to regain his memory again and took him a full year to like recuperate and get back to a shape where he was able to perform again. Wow. Yeah, he described it as a like huge life-changing event for him, but I couldn't actually find him talking about it much. Another failure of my research, Sean, yes. (laughs) What year did you say that happened? 1958. Okay. Yeah. So not like mid career with Capitol Records or anything, but shortly before that. Shortly before. And it seems like this kind of, and maybe this was kind of an impetus for him because after this is when his like career really starts to get going. So he ends up cutting a few singles with Herb Alpert's label, Shoddy Records. Shoddy? Shoddy? I'm just confused because I thought Herb Alpert's label was A and M, but it, it well, probably it was, just like gamble. You, you can own more than one label. I don't know. Well, if I was you're gonna aware, say just but... like Gamble and Huff had several as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So from my research, Herb Alpert's label Shoddy Records, and 
That led to him getting a deal with Capitol Records and releasing his first full-length album, Stormy Monday, with Les McCann. Ah, yes. I'd buy that alumni. Mm-hmm. Let's, uh, should we get to another cut? I think I could do another cut. Yeah, let's do another cut. I, I could go for get, that. Uh, I want to get a little sensual here with a little early morning love. Oh, yeah. Yeah, when I was previewing this, I was like, ooh, Jeremy's setting the mood. Yeah, this is a very diverse album. There's there's songs about, like, evening sex, morning sex, uh, <laughs> springtime sex for young lovers. He's got all of his bases covered on this record. Missing sex with previous lovers. Yeah. <laughs> yep, exactly. We'll get to that one. <laughs> all right. Well, let's play that track. Side A, track three. on that i know we're just going back to his voice again but it's lou rawls yeah yeah how can you not not (laughs) it deserves at least two or three moments of just sheer admiration yeah and this song is a bit slower and more dramatic it's a little more sparse i would say arrangement wise so it lets his voice really shine through and uh his his feelings his feelings are raw there, huh? The rawls. <laughs> My goodness. So both that and the first track were 
produced by Gamble and Huff, but they're different arrangers. Mm-hmm. The first track was arranged by Bobby Martin, and that one was arranged by a guy named Jack Faith. Yep. Those are both names that you will see on Philadelphia International Records releases consistently. Yes. And that's one of the things with Philly Soul that I've found out is that there are some big names like Gamble and Huff that uh, get a lot of recognition for their contributions. And then there's just a huge stable of other people that were involved. You know, we talked about this being a, a producer driven entity where it's, you know, one band is on the whole thing and it's a small stable of producers and engineers and it's all in the same studio. But that being said, there's like 50 members of MFSB and there's a whole different team of arrangers and producers that all work together on these records. So there's, yeah. it's a huge number of people that are all combining talents to create this music. And before we run away too much with that MFSB, I don't think we've talked about them yet. Yep. You opened that can. I was going to wait to open that can, but you opened it. So let <laughs> it sorry. out, Sean. It's not even my episode. I'm just fucking up the flow over here. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's fine. What's it mean? What's MFSB? Tell them the real name. No, you you tell them. Tell, tell, yeah, it is your episode, Jeremy. Take it back. Yeah. <laughs> Motherfucking son of a bitch. No, right? it's mother funkin son of a bitch. I think mother funkin son of a bitch, or son of sons of bitches. <laughs> what is the proper? I, I think it is funkin, right, Sean? It's not uh, fucking. Yeah, I mean, I I imagine you could use either one, but. <laughs> There's commercially, like when, it, yeah. Commercially, when you when you research this, everyone says that MFSB stands for mother, father, sister, brother. But I have heard rumors that that was just you know for uh, the family friendly commercial audiences. But yeah, yeah not like our podcast audience who can handle <laughs> yeah the real name. Our grown podcast audience. <laughs> Can't wait till the complaints roll in for this one, guys. <laughs> Yeah, so I mean, and it's just this huge collective. It's they're essentially the the Funk Brothers or the the Wrecking Crew of Philadelphia Nashville International A Team. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like mm-hmm. their local best performers kind of stable of studio musicians. Yep, and it is also notable that Philadelphia International is one of the few black owned soul labels. Uh, that's often why there's a lot of comparisons and contrasts between Philadelphia International and Motown. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. And I, th- I think that some of the uh, the members of MFSB were in Funk Brothers as well with the Motown. Yeah, there is actually a great deal of crossover, and like uh, Holland Dozier Holland moved to Philadelphia and started working out here as well after leaving Motown. Yeah, there was just a similarity in members. Uh, similarity and influence, you know, I think in a lot of ways as Philly soul was coming up, they were looking to try and repeat the success of Motown. But then as Philly soul star is rising, I feel like in a lot of ways, Motown, especially after they moved to LA was trying to take inspiration from Philadelphia international records. So it's a a symbiotic relationship in some ways, even though there's Mm -hmm. definitely a lot of competition going on too. Definitely. Let's join Lou back in. We're uh, we're gonna jump back to '67. Lou's been putting out albums, cranking them out, and in 1967, he played uh, a little show. It's a little 
thing called the Monterey International Pop Fest. Mm. Yeah. You, you guys heard of it much? No? A little bit. A little bit. Otis Redding played there, too. True. And Jimi Hendrix, right? Yeah, that's the... It was basically... I think that was uh, more or less Hendrix's kind of debut to American audiences. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. That's an album. I really like it, even though it's a weird album. But out there, there's... <laughs> uh, it's like half Otis Redding <laughs> on one side and half Jimi Hendrix yeah. on the other. I, I own that one, and I, I think I found it for relatively cheap, too. Yeah, I think... My copy was also not expensive because it's a weird combo that only a certain <laughs> audience is going to want. Yeah. And there's a lot of people that don't collect live records. But yeah, I was going to say that's probably the cheapest record you'll be able to find from either of those artists. Yeah. Maybe that's one we'll do someday. We'll see. Well, you know, he does that. He's putting out albums. He's winning awards. He switches labels a couple times. And then he signs. Philadelphia International in 1976. Can I just uh, jump back, jump back real quick, and say one thing about his career with Capital? Oh, did I gloss over anything in that decade? Uh, yeah. <laughs> so one of my favorite things about 60s era Lou Rawls is a great deal of those Capital records he was putting out was produced by none other than the legendary David Axelrod. Mm. Oh. I didn't even know that. Yeah, so it's uh, one of the one of the go to bargain bin David Axelrod associations you can buy is some Lou Rawls records, especially like his big hit Solon from nineteen sixty six. That's an album you see everywhere. David Axelrod produced amazing record. Yeah, yeah. There's because uh, David Axelrod's records are pretty pricey most of the time, right? His his own stuff. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I know you you hipped me to that Electric Prunes album that he did. Yeah, and you can find that one for like 10 bucks, but if you want that mm-hmm. true dollar bin, David Axelrod, you got to go with Lou Rawls. Are there expensive Lou Rawls albums? I feel like they're almost always in dollar bins. Um there's like a couple early ones that you don't see as much, but in general Lou Rawls is just kind of a dollar bin artist at this point. Yeah. He put out like 60 albums. I think it's just one of those he put out so much stuff that people are overwhelmed and probably don't bother sorting through to find the gems. Well, and you know, we talked about that first song, how it could only exist in the 70s. And I think he was one of those guys that was just so iconic and such a household name for a lot of communities in the 60s and 70s that... I think generations after that maybe just kind of passed him off as being a relic of the past kind of thing. Hmm. What a shame. Well, that's why we're here. That's why we're here. (laughs) To reach back in our time machines and bring them back into your ears. Well, his first album with Philadelphia International, All Things in Time... That's one you'll see all over the place, I feel like. That's the one I see most, maybe. Yeah. Do you guys have that experience? Yeah, that one's definitely out there. It was a big hit for him, and it's an amazing record. Yeah, it sold over a million copies and has his biggest hit as far as chart success. And you'll never find another love like mine that he would end up opening all of his shows with till the end of time. 
for him. But we are here on his second album, Unmistakably Lou, where they kind of let Lou, if you listen to All Things in Time, it is much more firmly ingrained in the Philadelphia soul, the Philly soul sound. And this one feels like they kind of let Lou be Lou a little more and kind of blended it with the Philly soul sound. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Because there's a lot more of a jazz influence to this record than was common with Philly soul stuff. There's always a little bit of a jazz influence, but there's a handful of tracks on here that go like full on crooner lounge jazz kind of thing. And I think it has the effect of he sounds maybe a little bit more comfortable and at home on this record than he does on All Things in Time. Which led to him winning a Grammy for Best Vocal Performance on an R&B album. Yeah, and it was it's one of four Grammys that he won, but this is the only one for a full album. The other three Grammys were for a specific song performance. Yeah, so it's a good album, okay? <laughs> okay, <laughs> I'm telling you. <laughs> You know, I I can't think of like specific examples off the top of my head because I never can, but I feel like we've done this a few times on the show where we talk about a record that was the follow-up to the big successful hit, and oftentimes these follow-ups just get overshadowed almost no matter what the artist does, you know? And I think this is a great example of the music is really, really good, but at the time when this record came out, everyone was still in love with the record that came before it and it being this huge comeback hit for him that sometimes these albums just slip through the cracks. Yeah. How do you top a chart topping hit? Like, how do you go past that? And I mean, if you're like super cool, I guess you do like multi chart topping hits. That's like two people in all existence though, probably. Yeah. Especially people who are what? 28 albums, 29 albums into their career at this point. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. most people have long hung it up by then. Uh, well, let's, uh, let's mention the players from MFSB who are actually on this album in particular. You got old Charles Collins on the drums. I'll mention some, some bands these guys are in or have performed on or with. But almost all of them have also performed with the bands I'm mentioning. They all have insane lists of featured on. So Charles was on uh, Herbie Mann, Dionne Warwick, and Elton John, very notably. Legendary Philly drummer. He got Michael Sugar Bear Foreman on the bass. He uh, played with Teddy Pendergrass, huge Philly international guy. The OJs, tons of other stuff. You got Dennis Harris on guitar, who also played with Teddy. Played with the Chilites, who we mentioned in a Patreon episode. Melba Moore, another I'd Buy That alum. You got Roland Chambers is the other guitar who played with everyone in the world, but also Wilson Pickett, Dusty Springfield, B.B. King. No no relation to the Chambers brothers. No. No. Roland Chambers is a big name in the 
Philly Soul MFSB studio world. He's on just so many good records. Great talent. Yeah, it's kind of between him and Charles Collins when I looked at the list of who had the most insane list of things they were on. But Roland might edge him out on that. Roland, Roland, Roland. What? <laughs> and finally, Larry Washington on the Congos and Bongos, who's played with the Spinners, Estrid Gilberto, and Grace Jones, quite yeah. notably. And Larry was one of those guys that could bring just a little bit of that Latin flavor to a record. So he was, that that kind of vibe was in high demand with session musicians. There's a lot of great records that may not be a Latin record in any way, but you add just that perfect Latin percussion studio musician and it elevates the song. And that was one of the dudes that could do that really well. Yeah, I thought the bongos on this album are kind of a big part of the disco feel that exists in here. I feel like that was the most uh, pressing instrument into that direction. I'll also say that a lot of the players on this record were also members of the Sal Soul Orchestra, which is another studio group that we've mentioned a couple times on the show before that did like a Latin disco crossover. It was kind of a big deal out here on the East coast. And that just says MFSB horns and strings, which who even knows how many (laughs) people that is. So yeah, that's who's on this thing. You guys ready for another cut? I think so. Let's do it. I want to do one of the jazzier tunes. And this song is one of the few songs on this album that is not a Gamble and Huff written or produced song and kind of leans more on that crooner jazzy vibe. So what's this one called? Secret Tears, Side B, Track 2. Tears 
Afraid to give, too proud to share The weaker part of me But does a man Have to cry all alone Why can't he Have a shoulder I gotta say, he sounds so at home on that track, his voice. And so up front in the mix, Mm -hmm. as you mentioned, it's like he's right inside your head, just like singing into your skull or something. Yeah, I looked at Jeremy and just started shaking my head when we were listening to that just now. It's just, yeah, right up front. And, you know, the other thing I was thinking about while listening to that is, is a lot of the big band crooner stuff that this sounds like the rhythm section is usually maybe like one of the least important parts of it. Like the string section is huge and the vocals are huge and those are the focus. And it's kind of the same with this track, but man, the bass and drums, they're like, they're simple, yet they're just so deeply funky that it's still makes this a Philly soul record, even though he's doing kind of the Lou Rawls thing on it. Yeah. That bass is also so upfront in all these songs. It's like right there in your face, just dry and, uh, holding it down. But mm-hmm. it's a very unique sound. It's almost within the mix. The thing that most sticks out to me as being unique is how the bass is in there. You know, I think the bass was such an important part of a lot of Philly soul songs specifically like one of the biggest hits from Philly soul was McFadden and Whitehead's ain't no stopping us now. And I think the baseline just makes that song like the song wouldn't even be half as good if it wasn't for that baseline. And that that's just true with a lot of the production style going on. The bass just kills it. But yeah, Michael Foreman did a great job on this record. And I want to also note real quick that he played on a couple mid period, Eddie Kendrick's records. He's a friend and going up in smoke from the mid 70s and i think eddie kendricks is another good example of that motown philly soul crossover thing like even though eddie stayed on tamla records through that period the sound that he was doing at this point was like totally philly soul influenced i think that he would have been doing by the late 70s yeah and i mean he was using some philly players on those records too so it's yeah proving my point that there's a lot of similarities there I think almost everyone listed on the players of this album played with Eddie Kendricks at one point, I noticed. <laughs> totally. He, he would have fit right in with this style. We're coming up on the end of our time on this episode, and we're like 20% through Lou Rawls' career. So <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and gloss over a few more decades. He would go on to get a star in the Hollywood Walk of Fame. He went on to create, as I mentioned, like 30 more albums. He kept making albums up until he passed away in 2006 of cancer. And he was yeah, creating music right up until the end. He also did some acting in the 70s, he started, and then later did some voice acting for bunch of Nickelodeon cartoons. Hey Arnold, Rugrats, Kablam, The <laughs> Proud Family. He also liked Garfield. And Yeah, he did the the theme songs for the Garfield TV specials. 
No oh. way. I didn't realize that's what he did on there. Yeah. I like that. That's awesome. <laughs> and one of his, the hugest things he really did in his whole life, he ran a telethon for a few decades that raised a quarter of a billion dollars over the course of his telethons wow. for the United Negro College Fund. Very cool. Lou yeah. Rawls calls. Lou Rawls calls. <laughs> um, he, go ahead. Well, this is too perfect of a setup by Peter. Probably unintentional, I'm guessing. But Ronald Reagan called him to... You know, tell him he appreciated what he was doing with this telethon. And Lou Rawls responded by being like, Well, if you appreciate it, you should donate some money. <laughs> and <then> he did. <laughs> Love it. Well played. Uh, yep. The other thing I was going to say is I, one of the kind of defining features of Philly Soul Act also is that there's a lot of political and community oriented messages going on there, more so than a lot of other comparable labels and scenes that was always a big part of what was going on the message was very important in a lot of these records yeah it's i would say not very prominent on this album true but yeah on other philly international releases for sure that's a big aspect of it Mm -hmm. looking ahead to next week our billy paul let him in album gonna have a little bit of that going on well foreshadowing yeah why not Sean, did you find some songs that would pair well with a nice Lou Rawls vino? (laughs) I sure did. So we did the playlist for every episode in season two. I'm going to keep it going in season three, but I'm going to make the playlist just a little shorter, a little easier to digest, keep them around an hour long. Um, No one asked me to. I just felt like that was the move. So we'll see if people like it or not. But yeah, we got a couple cuts from this Lou Rawls album, as well as I put his big hit, You'll Never Find Another Love Like Mine from the All Things in Time record. There's some Philly soul people in here, Archie Bell and the Drells. One of my favorite underappreciated Philly producers, Dexter Wansel, doing a song from his Life on Mars album. I put a Love Unlimited track on there. That's the group produced by Barry White who I feel like has a lot of similarities in approach and style to what was happening here in Philly. Eddie Kendricks, who we mentioned, Johnny Mathis with the song Foolish from his I'm Coming Home album that we did at the end of season two, another Philly soul produced. Got a Sammy Davis Jr. song from the What Kind of Fool Am I record that Jeremy covered. Another uh, great crooner. Isaac Hayes, Frank Sinatra, Jerry Butler's on there. Gene Carn. Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes. You can find that playlist on Spotify. Just search I'd Buy That Podcast, all one word, to find this and every other playlist. Lou Rawls may have some secret tiers. We don't have secret tiers, but we have Patreon tiers that you can pledge at. <laughs> oh my, oh my goodness. <laughs> I was you wondering did it. where you're going. Wow. <laughs> and you may have noticed, for those of you who closely follow this podcast, we, I think we had uh, suggested at the end of season two that we would be doing another big Patreon push here at the top of season three 
we have postponed that due to life for I think all three co-hosts in one way or another being a little in upheaval lately, mm-hmm. but we will be doing that mid season. So if you were looking forward to that, stay tuned. There will be Patreon perks coming up in a few months, but it's always there for you. Patreon.com slash I'd buy that podcast. There is the dollar tier that you can pledge at to get early access to episodes a few days in advance of when they become available for everyone else. There's the $5 tier where you get that early access. Plus you also get bonus episodes. We have quite a few of them available now and we'll be doing more this season. And at the limited $20 tier that there are still a few slots available for the, that's the vinyl subscription. So you get that early access, the bonus episodes, and you will also get mailed some records every month. That's right. So you can all, once again, you can, yeah, co-host Sean takes care of that. You'll get a note, handwritten note along with that. Uh, you can check all that out at patreon.com slash I'd buy that podcast. And once again, we will be doing a Patreon push with some perks mid season. But for now, let's turn things back to co-host Jeremy and Lou Rawls. What else do we have to say about Mr. Lou Rawls? I don't have anything else. That was it. That was it. I'm glad Sean mentioned putting Frank Sinatra on the playlist because the last song I want to leave us on has strong Frank Sinatra Watertown album that we covered. Super in that vein. It's our anniversary today is the last song I want to leave you all with. Yeah, and I <laughs> I really uh, was listening to this, uh, to this song, and I was entertained by it once I realized that it's not, he's not talking to someone that he's currently in a relationship with in this song. No. No, and as the uh, only divorcee on this podcast, I think it probably touches me uh, closer than you guys, but <laughs> it's, uh, you know, it's a good song. And like I said, as that strong Frank Sinatra vibe, do you guys have any last thoughts on Lou before we move on? I just want to note that this is the only Dexter Wansel produced track on this record who I mentioned. I'm a big fan of that guy. Sick. Yep. Peter, you got any last things you want to say about Lou before we hit the road? I honestly, I don't think that I fully, uh, understood how much of a a crooner he was prior to hearing this album. And, uh, I like it. It really fits. It really fits his, uh, his voice. And, uh, that Watertown comparison for this last track is, uh, spot on. Yeah. Yeah. I think the crooner aspects of Lou Rawls are what specifically draws me to Lou over some other Philly artists that, uh, you know, we're talking about which Philly artist you want to do and lose my boy, you know? Very good. He's, well, uh, he's maybe got my vote for the greatest crooner of all time. Whoa. Whoa, 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 whoa. He's a, he's a great singer. I'm all about Agreed it. Agreed there. You think, you think someone else is a better crooner? Who's a better crooner than Lou? I don't know. I'm just not ready to make that proclamation, you know? Well, I'm just going to sit here and wait for you to come up with any contenders, which you can't, so. 
I'm more of a research than declare kind of guy rather than declare than prove me wrong kind of guy. Like well, some I, of us. Sir, or, or I've done this, my own research. <laughs> from this episode, Jeremy, it seems that you're a research and get proven wrong guy. <laughs> <laughs> I hate you guys. Episode (laughs) over. It's our anniversary today. Thank you for our two-year anniversary, fellas. I'm so glad to be back with you. (laughs) (laughs) It is good to be back with you guys, I will say. And uh, back, it's great to be back with listeners as well for season three of I'd Buy That for a Dollar. My name is Peter Cook. I'm Sean Hartman, and you'll never find another love like mine. I'm Jeremy Ruggles. Bye. I'm only calling to remind you It's our anniversary It seems so very long Since you and the kids Went away Just how is Tommy doing in school now? Does Jenny need a new pair of shoes? Tell them both I miss them so And tell yourself that I miss you I'd like to see your face again I'd like to hold you close, but then I know it's wrong for me to call Your new love is all